SNC coaches and their exercise professionals to get the best out of them. I don't want to be, I don't want them to be reliant on me all the time for their for their strength and conditioning. I think it needs to be proactive. They need to take some ownership of it. They also need to be directed by the appropriately trained people. Um, and if we as physios hold on to our patients for too long, we're not going to see the best outcomes. Um, That's perfect. Like that, like. I just put it live just because I wanted to catch this because it's just such an organic conversation we're having. Um, mm. And I think it's this disconnect between... This disconnect between the early stage, middle stage, and end stage, yeah. okay? Yeah. And you're getting some awesome physiotherapists who are now... They're building a skill set and qualifications and they can do both. They can yeah. do the early to the end, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing from physiotherapists is often there are quotas that physios have to hit when they mm -hmm. work in facilities. You have to hit multiple times, uh, two, three times per week for this these first yeah. four-week block, then blah, blah, blah. So the outcomes are less about getting the results as quickly as possible, more about money and retention. Yep. What, what are your thoughts yep. on that? Yeah, and I, I had some experience with that um in a previous previous clinic where it wasn't necessarily a quota but there was a, there was some expectation that you'd see a person you know x amount of times in a given time frame um, but i know there are some other practices where it is you know you've got a bare minimum you know there is a, a business perspective to it and and the and the practice manager um, or the business owner would want you to see them x amount of times per week for x amount of weeks um, depending on the injury Depending on a number of different factors so it does exist and it's a shame um, I'm lucky enough to work in a clinic here in Melbourne where they don't really they don't have those key performance indicators or KPIs you know they, they all they you know really all they want you to see as a bare minimum is you see them for the first time um, and, and if, if you know importantly you see them for a second time to make sure they're getting better and so you can plan them um, and if you don't see them because they've just got better and resolved on themselves, that's great. But make sure you follow up with them with a phone call or an email to make sure that's their expectation. So, um, which is great. And and that really is how it should be. You know, that person needs to be seen really as many times as, you know, as they, as they need to be seen, not 10 times in the first five weeks or, you know, four times in the first three weeks, just because you've got to meet some business quota. That's, it's a business model. It's not necessarily a, a good physiotherapy model um, for from a patient perspective. Um, and I think ultimately we sometimes forget that you know we should be um, trying to get the patient better and get them to take ownership of their injuries and their rehabilitation to drive their own recovery because um, they need to be you know front and center of our decision making. They need to be part of that decision making as well. Um, and I think if we if if we get them too reliant on us, it's not a great thing for their own self-efficacy in the future. And, and, and allow, I think sometimes it can actually reinforce some chronic illnesses because they don't know how to get out of a hole when they're in hole. They don't have those problem-solving strategies or the coping strategies to get out of them. They always you know, get, get sore or get injured and they, they go, go running back the, to their physio for, for hands-on treatment or, or whatever it may be. I think we need a little bit more, you know, here's, your, here's the skills to get you um, out of it and here's how we're going to rehab you so you can take ownership for, for yourself in the future of course we give guidance along the way but yeah I, I think I guess to answer your question there is certainly some um, sections of the, um, the physio community that, that, that does have KPIs um, that are quite um, quota driven how do um, you then bridge the gap between 
because making you essentially saying, and it's something I say to my clients, like I want to make myself redundant. I don't want yes, you to be yeah. reliant on me. And yeah. it's from yeah. a business model, it's dumb. Yeah. Right? It sucks. Yeah, I'm the worst business. I'm the worst from a business perspective. I'm the worst physio in the world. Right. I I, I see a person. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm like you. Yeah. I think it's important that we become redundant after a while, and that's a great skill in itself these two if you give that person so much knowledge and information that they can do that on their own that's a powerful um tool to give um and and that's where i think we all should be striving to to do that um yeah i'm 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 terrible at maintaining a list um and you know saying <laughs> or i can maintain a list i'm seeing patients and all that kind of stuff but in terms of kpis my kpis suck um, and I, but but I, I'm happy with that. I, I like seeing a patient once, um, and often on now at the moment I'm picking. I, I pick up a lot of tricky cases. I see patients who maybe four months down the track, six months down the track after an ACL reconstruction, and are struggling because they're struggling to run, they're struggling to jump. They they can't foresee any future where they'll be training or playing or playing sport. And they're frustrated and they're in a hole and and to take them through a consultation and say look these are the the reasons behind why you're probably struggling it might be a weak quad it might be poor balance it could be poor over over overall lower limb strength it could be a number of different factors but we identify those weaknesses and we try to get them out of that hole um and importantly i want to give them the tools to try and get out of the themselves rather than supervise them through the next month twice a week you know for four weeks so i want to give them a program i want to give them a plan and i want want to also get an appropriate exercise professional to help them along the way um in a good and because most people need a good gym program if they're coming to see me and what matters the most is because if they're coming to travel to see me in the city yet they live out in the southeast suburbs or they live up in the northern suburbs access to me is going to be quite difficult if they have to come in twice a week so importantly, I want them to work with someone that's convenient to them, but also is expert in, in their given field as well. So knowing, you know, where these you know, health professionals live around for, for us in Melbourne, you know, if I've got a patient who lives in Southeast suburbs, I want to be referring to exercise professionals down there because I know they'll be able to get to them for consistency. I'll see them twice a week or once a week or however many times they need to do. We've got a patient up in the northern suburbs. I'm going to send them up there to a, to a local person up there that I know is going to give them that consistency. I think consistency is really, really important when it comes to a lot of training. Um, and I noticed you also mentioned uh, that I wanted to bring up a great point. Like, how do you teach your clients, your athletes, um, basically the self-awareness, the tools? You said you want to give them the tools. What is the most effective way that you've found to give people the tools to learn body self-awareness, to learn how to manage their own injuries, pain, and ailments? Yeah, I think a lot of, um, it's a great question, I, and it, it would probably differ a little bit from person to person, but I think so it's a lot of feedback, both verbal, um, visual feedback. Like, for example, someone who's not landing very well. You know, they, they're six months post-op, they're, they're trying to run, they're trying to jump, but their knee gets sore. Um, a perfect example for this would be, let's get them to jump and land either with a video camera in front of them filming them so then you can replay the footage or let's get them to do it in front of a mirror and let's talk them through why they're getting some of their pain. So I think certainly some, some verbal feedbacks and visual feedbacks really important because if they're landing really stiffly on that affected leg, and it's like giving them almost like a jarring sensation or they're, they're hinging at the hip to help absorb that force. 
and that's very different from their uninjured side. And that's that's a very that's almost like the the light bulb moment as to why they're getting some pain. It's like, okay, how can we help you shock absorb better to dissipate that load better? And then you take that one step further for this person, for example, and you go measure their quad and you get them to do a 10 rep knee extension test or you measure their quads and it's like you're 30% down here. That's the reason why you're not shock absorbing well and why you're cheating at the hip and why you're jarring that knee. So if we address your quads, you'll feel more confident when you land, you'll land more smoothly and then and you take it from there. So you try to, I guess, rationalize why they're in their pain, you know, through either weakness or, or strength or lack of flexibility, lack of range, swelling. You try to find answers why. And I think it's lots of communication, lots of feedback. That That's one, one way I uh, hopefully um, get people to buy in um, to, to their rehab. And ultimately, you need to find out what their why is as well. Like if... If they're going through rehab without any purpose, you know that can sometimes make it hard for you to plan their next step. So if you know what their end game is, you can then almost work backwards to find out what you need to do. Do you have any techniques for that? Because as a as a as a coach, as an allied health professional, you are. It's like that is critical because if mm. it's Viktor Frankl who said, who was a Holocaust survivor, um, uh, a sufficient why can bear almost any how right yeah, and how yeah. is the excuse and the reason not to do something so how do you how do you find that for people because there's so many ways to go about it you hear tony robbins talk about it you hear like all these speakers talk about it how do you how do you do it yeah um I, I, one of the first conversations i have people with people going through acl rehab is you know what are, what are we doing here what are we getting you back for you know, what's what's important to you um and i think it's all you, you, you try to just ask them that why like i don't have necessarily a, a recipe of questions or a pro forma question and it's just trying to it's just really having a conversation about the person um and what they want to do and, and probably take that little bit broader approach too because i find that you know most of my patients maybe in their 20s or 30s and and life is starting to get in 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 the road for them you know like they might be going that they might be, have just started work they might be um, getting married they might be having kids um, they might be, you know, just in a different life phase. And, and I've sort of been through that. So I can now um, empathise and sympathise with some of the struggles that they're coming along. And particularly, say, for example, a 30-year-old male or a 30-year-old female who's maybe got one or two kids with them and they're trying to juggle work and life, yet they also want to go back to sport. It's like I think what comes with age and experience is that you can sort of know how hard it can be for, for people. And so to have those you know, conversations with someone too, to say, look, I understand what you're going through at the moment, but we're going to get you to your why and we're going to get you to where your goals want to take you. Um, and I think it's coming along with the journey with them is important as well. But ultimately, you've got to know what does this person want to do with their rehab? What are we getting them for? Why is it important to them um, to do that? And if you start to understand those reasons... Um, that's when you can really become an effective physio and an effective coach, but also know what are some of the barriers that that person's got to overcome too to achieve that goal. Is they do they have a really crazy work schedule? Is their work life balance out of order? Do they have a young family that makes it hard for them to achieve their goals sometimes? And when that happens, you've then got to just really prioritise what's important in each rehab phase. You may give them mainly one or two exercises to do in that session, or you might just you know, make the, those those rehab sessions a little bit short, sharp and intense because you've only got half an hour to work with them because that's all their, their window for the week 
is 30 minutes or, you know, two sets of 30 minutes is all they got. So you have to be flexible as a physio or an S&C coach to work with them, not be a dictator saying, you've got to come and see me three times a week for an hour. Some people simply don't have that. I think that's where some people fall flat with their rehab because their, their rehab is so out of um, out of control. They just simply can't do it. So they throw their hands up and say, oh, stuff it. I'm not, not going to do anything. And that's where I think um, we may lose it. That's a great That's point. If you're trying to lower the barrier for entry based on the individual's own lifestyle, stress, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. You have to, you know, I think we, we can sometimes, you know, grab a you know cookie cutter recipe and say, okay, go off and do this. But, you know, that, that, that won't work for everyone. And, and I find myself more often than not giving rehab programs for a patient that's only got one or two exercises in them because all I want them to do is get that muscle strong or get that, get that whole entire lower limb strong. And if they can achieve that goal for the next two or three weeks until things die down or things get less busy, then that's, a, that's an important tick of the box. And then it then opens up doors in the future. But if you, if you tell them they have to do this and they have to do that, and there's simply not enough time in their week to do that, they'll just go, no, I can't do it. I can't do it, so I won't do anything. But, but listen to what you just said. Like, I bet in physio school, uh, in, in universities, if they heard a Mick Hughes say, hey, I only give some of my clients one to two exercises maybe every day, every couple of days, like, I almost think that's a that's a bombshell for so many people because they would think, oh, there's so much to do. We got to strengthen. We got to um, recreate uh, neural neural connections from brain to, to muscle. We have motor control. We have balance, proprioception. All these overwhelming things, and you overwhelm the client by your own expertise, yep. almost, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm a, I think, and that's and that's come with experience too. I, I would, yeah, looking back to ten years ago, I was just having this conversation with the guys uh, in the states. Um, I was on the podcast for they. If I could go back and talk to myself 10 years ago, I'd say just chill out, calm down, you know, find, find those priorities yeah. for the person and, and prioritize your rehab sessions and the exercise sessions and give, you know, two or three really high quality, high value exercises to a person that's going to help them get better rather than a confusing 10 step program that's going to address all these little impairments that they've got, you know, look, yeah, make, make things realistic for the person, but that's, that comes with experience and that comes with life experience for yourself as a clinician, but also to, as you, as you get through your own, I guess, um, professional experience, you'll, you'll sort of know where you, you, you can prioritize certain exercises or, or give you know, certain exercises or drills because they, they tick four or five boxes instead of five individual, five individual exercises that tick all the boxes give one exercise that ticks five boxes. Um, and there's probably a few things out there that people could be doing. Yeah, that's a bit more efficient. Do you have that? Like, do you have like big, that's a general question, which is kind yeah. of shit, but do you have those big bang for buck movements? Yeah, for sure. What is that for you? Yeah, so look, for, for an ACL reconstruction, like, I mean, there's always debate about open chain, closed chain. Look, I think for, for, the, busy, for the busy ACL reconstructed athlete, um, if they've only got time to do three exercises, it's going to be a single leg knee extension because we've got to hit those quads in isolation, followed by a Bulgarian split squat because it hits a lot of, you know, it hits quads, hits glutes, gets the trunk involved, yeah. gets the balance control, gets the control around the distal segment as well. You can load it up really efficiently as well. Um, and then a single leg RDL because it's going to hit that posterior chain. And once again, it's a weight-bearing exercise. It's going to hit all those important 
uh, muscles as well. So like they're they're my three go tos. And if I've got more time, I'll throw in you know a good heavy squat, a good heavy deadlift, and a good heavy hip thruster. Um, you know, there's those big rocks. If they're done consistently and progressively overloaded with time, that's a great rehab. And it doesn't have to be too fancy with unstable surfaces and heaps of circus tricks that are out there that you see at the moment. Like I see so much, so much frustrating stuff out there um, that, you know, if we just focus on just the, the big fundamental movements that will help an athlete improve themselves, but allow them to accept load uh, really well through that affected limb, like that that's going to be great. And I think, unfortunately, with a lot of ACL reconstructed athletes, as you've probably experienced and may have alluded to before, is that we we chronically underload that athlete for too long. We don't give that affected side sufficient loading because we're worried about it yeah. for whatever reason. We're scared. We're fearful, and we we're don't scared, we yeah. don't want to make it worse because then yeah. that's on us, right? But let's yeah. talk about that psychology. Mm. Yeah. So look, I think. And, and that was, that's been a problem for me for a large part of my career. Certainly up until now, I felt much more comfortable knowing that you can effectively and appropriately load an injured limb, be it an ankle, be it a knee, be it a hip. You know, especially for the knee, it will tell you if it's really shitty at you for the load that you've just tried to throw at it. It'll swell. It'll swell within a matter of hours after you after your session. Now, it's not the end of the world if you have a swelling dose. It's going to just tell you, look, you've overloaded me, you've overcooked me, calm down, reassess, give it two or three days to calm down. Let's get the swelling down off it for the next two or three days and let's try again, but let's just temper it down for the next session and see how it responds. If it does it again, we've got to temper it down again. But if it doesn't do that, I think we found our magic load there for yeah. the next you know, two or three sessions. Then we can take it up that next notch again to get you back to where you were before. So swelling's a sign that you've just overcooked it. It's not a sign that everything's all of a sudden disintegrated inside the knee and you've re-injured the graft or, you know, you've completely stirred up the knee that it's now going to be irreparable. Like it's just a sign that you've overcooked it. So I think that's often um, a problem that that we see. And I think we're a bit fearful for that. Um, and it's it's an unnecessary fear. I think we can we can load up that knee appropriately and we, we should be doing it a little bit more. And we can actually do it a little bit earlier than what most people think. How much earlier do you think? Well, I, I think, case by case, yeah, but... yeah, for sure. Look, I, I think after an ACL re- reconstruction, you know, like you could, you could get some, like I, I generally get my patients squatting um, body weight and then with some extra load from about four weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting on to some leg presses and, and look deadlifting from, you know, four to six weeks, even with a reasonable amount of load, particularly if that hamstring harvest site's accepting that load really well. Like you can put some decent load on a patient as early as, you know, four to six weeks. Um, once again, your knee will tell you if it's not happy with that load. I, I go, you know, re- reasonably cautious with the repetitions. You know, we're only, we're dealing with, you know, 10s to 15s, sometimes up to 20s, like in that first, you know, the first four to six weeks if we're putting some load behind it. But once the knee has proven that it's tolerating that lower weight, higher rep range, that's when we can start getting into your six to tens over a period of time. And then, you know, eventually into, you know, your, your five by fives or your five by threes and, you know, whatever you want to do after that. But that load should be introduced reasonably early if it can be tolerated. If that knee can bend to 90 degrees um, and they can stand up from a chair, then they can squat um, and they should be able to squat. Yeah. 
and I think to take it back, there's a couple things floating through my mind, but one of them is your key indicator exercises for rehab were all unilateral, which is really interesting to hear. You got the knee yep. extension, split squat, and the single leg RDL. And yeah. that dynamically corresponds to life, mm. sport. It, yeah. like, and I just wanted to make a note of that because I think we're very quick to always love and fall in love with the bilateral movements with, with a mm. clear uh, disconnect with the single leg movements, which are so important for proprioception, balance, um, stability is huge. Yep. Please, if you got anything that you want to yeah. share on that. Yeah, look, I think look, I, there's certainly value in like a good heavy load squat, double leg squat, double leg deadlift, like and double leg lift. You got, you got some value there. Um, but if you're only programming that, and we see notoriously with a um, an ACL patient, they'll they'll shift that load to the unaffected side, um, and they'll they've seen that we've seen that in a couple of studies where you know you, even a body weight squat in a in an ACL reconstructed patient, they'll shift that load to the unaffected side at about the three month mark, and then at five months with a body weight squat they'll they'll still shift the load, but they'll shift the load on that that ACL side up to the hip, so they won't be bending that knee re, they won't they won't be bending that knee really well, so if we if we just chug along with double leg leg press, double leg squats, double leg deadlift, double leg hip, hip thrusters for too long, um, we're, we're going to be chronically underloading that affected side. So there, there certainly is some wriggle room and some need to get into some unilateral training. Um, you know, when that is, it'll be up to the patient to prove themselves to do that. You know, how much load you put put them on, it'll be up to the patient, up to the harvest site, up to how the knee is responding. But if you chronically underload them, you you, you we're not going to be setting our patients up for a great overall recovery or it's going to take us forever to try and make up for that lost time of, of underloading in those first three months. So look, I think there's certainly some wriggle room there um, from about six weeks onwards to start loading hmm. onto that one leg, be it a lunge, be it assisted single leg squat uh, up and down. So one, one simple way I, I do to progress a, a, a squat to try to get them into a Bulgarian or a single leg sit to stand from a chair is stand um, stand on their affected leg. Now use the other side as much as they need to to help them lower down eccentrically, and then allow that other leg too to help them up as much as they need to too. You, you may shift the load back to maybe 50 to 60 percent on that affected side, and you might have 40 to 50 percent through their unaffected side, but there's still still some load going through that. ACL side and then you can just naturally progress that over time so there's some simple strategies out there we just need to to know how to um, adapt the rehab plan to, to suit the athlete in front of us and it's also a, it's a note on being unemotional about pain right yeah. I think yeah. and I'm being guilty for this out of ignorance didn't know mm. that I learned from guys like you guys from like Jordan Radliff a great up and coming mm. coach at Woodford's um, mm. they're teaching me that okay Pain is just a feedback mechanism, and we look at the post twenty four hours, forty eight hours to see yep. the window of tolerance. Yes, for Can sure. Can you break down like the psychological, emotional aspect of pain? Yeah, look, I think that's that's often the thing that I communicate with with all my patients is that you know, look, we have to take you through a bit of tough love here. If we're going to have a good result, if you want to do great things with your knee in the future, and you want to get back playing sport, we've got to be a bit tough with you from time from time to time if we go through rehab and you don't experience any discomfort or pain then we probably haven't loaded you enough 
Um, so my, my rule of thumb... With, you just said you haven't loaded them enough if they're not pushing the boundaries and feeling a little bit of pain. I yeah. want to clarify. Yeah. Awesome. So Keep if, going. Yeah, so we need to load you. We need to take you to some uncomfortable positions. If we go through rehab and you have zero out of 10 all the time, then we're not doing our job properly. Like there's a threshold. There's you know, zero out of 10. I use a simple, a simple zero to 10 rule. Um, so zero is no pain. 10 out of 10 is the worst ever pain you've ever experienced. A three to four out of 10 out of three, three to four out of 10 pain scale is kind of my threshold for tough love. Um, if, if we take you beyond a five or a six, we're probably going to flare you up and we're going to do so. And your knee's going to be crappy at you for the next you know, three days. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's probably not worth what we've just put you through, but to have a little bit of discomfort in your knee around the knee within that session, that's two or three out of 10. And if then for the next 24 hours, you still got this little grumble around your knee for two to three out of 10 for the next 24 hours, that's great. That's what we need to do to help toughen you up, to make you a more robust, resilient athlete, but also a robust knee that's able to then progressively be overloaded with time. Because yeah, what hurts today and tomorrow, you do that same session in a week's time, it's not gonna hurt so much. Um, but if we overcook you and take you to a five or a six, you know, we're gonna be riding this boom bust cycle where you know you, you you get flogged and then now you're out of action for the next two or three days because he's got this really irritable knee. So if we don't listen to your pain, um, we can we can do harm. But we need to listen to your pain and, and take you to a level of just discomfort, but not you know significant pain that's going to swell. And I find that three to four out of ten scale um, is a is a pretty good rule of thumb for most people going through ACL rehab. So yeah, to experience zero out of ten pain through through your rehab is potentially um, probably you know undercooking your rehab and not giving you the best outcome either that's super practical like thanks for uh, mentioning that too and, and i got we got some comments from facebook some some more humorous comments uh lucky wilmot from athletes authority um, oh, yeah. would love to know his favorite brand of chinos also rm williams in a clinic setting great discussion topic well my favorite pair of chinos i've got some um what have i got on today i don't know some uh <laughs> Can't even see, but they're they're good. They're good, and they're tightly fitting, lucky for you. They've uh, they hug my my um my calves really well. I've um known to have you know, un- disproportionately bigger calves to, calves to the rest of my legs, so they they fit snugly. Um, Aaron Williams, I'm actually off them a little bit. They're a bit expensive uh, for, for my taste, because I chew through my shoes pretty pretty quickly. I probably should upgrade though, but uh, YD shoes, mate. Um, so yeah, they. There you go, Lockie. Non-slip surface. You take that. And Kennedy Lay. I uh, must go ahead. I must. I must say, Lockie. Lockie has made me uh, think differently about my my clothing attire. Um, he's uh, he's been a, a great proponent of, of me to get me thinking differently about the rehab choices and clothes. <laughs> and he's, he's made me think. Made me think deeply, and thank you, Lockie, for that. I appreciate your kind words and feedback all, all through my uh, <laughs> all through the years. He's just looking out for you, you know, yeah, he is. in different he ways. Yes. And Kennedy Lay, I didn't notice this. Is that red wine, Nick? Red wine? Whereabouts? Oh, you tell me. I thought... Oh, here. No, this is a delicious long black coffee. All right, there you go. Yeah. I was a bit too early for that, I think. Bit, um, bit too early. But to go back early in our conversation, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, well, we talked about swelling and mm. inflammation, and that well, swelling is a, is a kind of byproduct of inflammation, and it's deemed as the enemy. Um, and I, I'm learning this from a guy called Gary 
renal, I can't remember if I'm saying that right, and basically talking about how, how swelling is like a byproduct of the inflammation process and the, one of the best ways to move it out is through the lymphatic system, is through mm. movement, through mm. uh, things like muscle stimulation if you can't yeah. move very much. Do you use that stuff much? Um, I don't use a lot of technology, to be honest, but I, I certainly encourage the removal of swelling through active muscle contractions. Um, so like some and perfect example of this, once again, early ACL reconstruction or even ACL injury when a person sustained an acute knee injury and the knee is swollen up like a balloon and it's quite stiff and sore, even like yeah, an ankle, you know, like the, the best thing to help remove swelling, you know, in most cases is active movement as tolerated so for for a knee that's been recently injured or reconstructed i'll be asking that person to be flexing and extending that knee you know trying to get a good quad pump um, to help flush out that fluid from around the knee and dissipate it um you know good ankle pumps as well to get that calf you know basically pumping and squeezing some of that debris that's sort of hanging around the ankle joint and, and obviously combining the two actions you, and you know, you're going to see some nice re return and removal of some of that fluid that's um, that's sitting around the joint. So one of the more powerful ways to get things moving proactively is through active muscle contraction. So yeah, um, you know, get them moving, get them pumping, get them, you know, it doesn't have to be heavily loaded acutely after an injury, but one way to get rid of a, a new fresh dose of swelling is get those muscles pumping and once again, I mean, I, I like the exercise bike for that acute injury phase, you know, very little load going through the knee, but man, it helps that knee pump and squeeze. It helps that knee bend and move. It helps the ankle maintain some degree of flexibility there. There's, there's so many positive things to achieve in the acute setting rather than just letting the person rest and recover and put them in a brace unnecessarily or restrict their range unnecessarily when they don't need to or just, you know, put them on crutches once again unnecessarily for too long. Like there's a time and a place for all those things. Um, but if we have them for too long, then it's only going to be at a detriment to that person um, and it's going to, you know, delay their recovery. Um, and in terms of technology, I don't use much at all. I don't use much of, you know, Compex or Stim, E-Stim, all those, that kind of stuff. I want, per I want people actively doing it themselves where possible rather than letting a machine do that stuff for them right that, that's fair enough and i mm. would in kind of uh, to add on to that i would suggest that if someone even has an immobilized limb mm. fully immobilized they can't move it i've found and i'm finding with uh some of my clients and athletes that muscle stem up and down the site is actually pretty helpful and even there's mm. some good research out there that shows that you can massively mitigate atrophy muscle atrophy if you if you're bedridden, for example, and you muscle yep. stim that that muscles muscle site, so yep. much uh, atrophy is minimised. Yep. Yeah, and there's there's certainly a good body of evidence in the ACL world where you use uh, electrical stim in the first four weeks, four to six weeks of rehab after an ACL injury when you can't really utilise your quad as best as possible, you can't use your hamstring as best as possible. There's certainly Good, good research out there that that says that you can. I just, it's. I think in my clinical setting, it, it's because I don't see. Um, I actually don't see a lot of um, post-op patients in those first four weeks. They tend to come to me later on in the piece. So I see a vast majority of my patients are later on in the piece where so they get moving immediately. I would, yeah. If I, the ones that I do see, I, I'm, I'm, you know, 
utilizing active means as much as possible to you know to try and yeah basically minimize that wasting so that they don't have they don't have to reach out so much to the to the electricals and, and the passive modalities where possible like i think isometric contractions earlier are often underutilized and, and not done enough um, and I think just basic range of movement stuff can be really helpful too, rather than put someone in a, in a splint or say, you know, let's go non-weight bearing for too long. Like we can get that person moving really well um, on their own terms. Um, obviously, there'll be some post-op restrictions that the surgeon will put in place, but that's where isometric contractions can be really, really powerful. And I think we need to be sort of you know, maybe working with those um, a bit more than what we currently do. But yeah, e-stim electrical stims they, they certainly have a role to play in the in the certain certain athletes and certain post-op but i think the uh, answer is, is probably somewhere in the middle it's like you don't want to just do one or the other you know combine yeah, that's multiple right. interventions 100 if you're sitting down and just letting that work doing its thing and you aren't actively trying to engage in it i think that's where you know we may run into problem every now and again like you know use the use the technology we've got use the stimulation that we've got but also try to have a go yourself you know try to actually contract that muscle yourself to have a bit more powerful effect great point and i wanted it i think i saw you make a post about protocols for around icing um and alternatives uh i don't know your exact thoughts on it but yeah. uh, you know that the the rice protocol that uh, Dr. Gabe Merkin created, mm. who's he's actually, you know, in his 80s, gone back against that and uh, yeah. talked about how, you know, now we we know that ice actually delays and delays uh, healing and recovering. Maybe yeah. you have different thoughts, but what are your thoughts on icing and its efficacy, and how it can actually be maybe even detrimental? Yeah, look, I, I'm just sort of guided by what um, what the research is showing, and, and as you said, like it certainly can delay the, re- the recovery, and I've um, I mean, I still use ice more so from the analgesic effect because um, it does still have, you know, some some utility there. And I'd certainly be encouraging if you've got an acute injury, yeah, if you're in pain, sure, you know, use it, use it to your advantage. But I think there's certainly an, an overdosing and an over overuse of ice where we, we certainly should be um, getting the person moving a little bit more um, and, and maybe second guessing you know how much we use but i mean it's such an ingrained culture within within the medical fraternity and snc fraternity where you know someone injured themselves you know chuck a bag of ice or get them into an ice bath or something like that for a sprained ankle um now look there's probably a role to play but more so from the pain relief perspective but i think from a tissue modeling perspective yeah, the research is showing that there's a potential that it actually can delay some of our healing potential there. And I mean, case in case in point, like, you know, I know one um, athlete case studies are not the best. And I wouldn't call myself an athlete, but my recent ankle sprain that I had was a, a pretty nasty grade three lateral ankle sprain. I, I iced my ankle for about, you know, 10 minutes acutely afterwards because it was bloody sore. Yep. And I didn't yep. put a bag of ice or put it into a bucket of cold water for the next, you know, up until now, you know, eight weeks later. Um, but I, I noticed, you know, like within 24 hours, you know, I was I was moving okay. I was walking without a limp. I was a bit stiff. I was a bit sore. You know, I, I just got loading on it. And I've, you know, I think, you know, if you saw any of the videos, I was hopping, jumping and landing and, and doing some really active things reasonably well. And I think, I think, um, I think we probably, once again, we don't load up enough um we don't sensibly load up enough early. I think sometimes with with simple injuries like an ankle sprain, for example, 
we may go partial weight bearing for too long. We might put them in moon boots for too long. We might say, you know, let's ice it, you know, 24 hours around the clock, you know, all, all too long. And, and um, is that to the potential detriment for the athlete? Um, I guess it's hard to say because it's, because you can't really put the, I don't. I haven't seen a study where they've gone head to head with different icing protocols or anything like that, and it can be hard sometimes to do that. But you know, some in theory, if we are um, seeing a, a, a potential harm in in tissue regeneration and delays in tissue regeneration, then it's got to make us question as to um, do we keep icing for too long? Uh, and I think that's probably, you just need to think about you know why are you icing this athlete? Is it is it is it is it for pain? Fine. But is, is it for um, swelling reduction um, or to help range or for other things? And you've got to be thinking, uh, is there another way to get this happening? Yeah, if we're trying to do uh, swelling reduction, let's get them moving. Let's get them loading. To- you know, let's, let's do things in other ways more proactively rather than just dumping a bag of ice on it. And that's, that's what I've read and heard is that applying that cold and that ice can actually trap more fluid there because there's no movement you're getting vasoconstriction you're not getting that really good inflammatory response where macrophages white blood cells can storm the area and clear the area and then your answer is movement move the lymphatic system so we can move the fluid in a more natural way instead of trapping it there with ice that's the things that i've been learning anyway yeah yep no i agree i think that's i think we just need to have a deeper deeper thinking deeper understanding of you know what we're doing and, and why. And I think certainly that recent article and that review by um, uh, Escola and um, the other author, but it was in the, the one I shared on Peace and Love um, from the British Journal of Sports Medicine blog post. It's, it's a really good, um, uh, it's a good read, anyone to have a, have a read of it. It's it's, a, it's on, there. I think the, the article itself, the review article, I think yeah, it's behind a paywall, but the blog that the authors wrote it's a free free blog for people to read so if you type into your web browser bjsm peace and love um you'll you'll have the the blog's summary there that challenges our current icing belief so give it a read people might think like what the hell you talk about peace and love um protect elevate avoid (laughs) anti-inflammatory and then uh load optimize vascularization exercise i don't remember that have in front of me sorry (laughs) i don't worry i'm not that i'm glad you didn't ask me because i wouldn't have been able to it's a nice acronym. acronym. Yeah, well, it just gives us an alternative uh, yeah. method, uh, application to dealing with you know inflammation, musculoskeletal injuries. Um, and yes. Yeah. I want to shift gears to you know the personal trainer. You know, Orphic Education. Yeah. We we uh, teach and, and regulate certificate threes and fours in fitness. Um, and mm. I think there's often a gap between personal trainers and, and physiotherapists. What can a personal trainer learn and take from the physiotherapy world that you think they're missing and the coach and that you think they're missing that they could learn and take? Um, it's a good question. Um, Where are we getting it wrong? Where could we be better? Yeah, look, I think yeah, everyone's got their, even like, I think everyone's got their really, their, their limitations to the career. And look, I mean, physiotherapy, you know, we, it's a four-year degree. It's, it's hard to compare a set four to a four-year degree where, um, you know, you're learning a lot about the path, pathophysiology. I think that's probably the, the thing is the pathophysiology the injury, um, it can be, it is really important to understand. Um, and, you know, to, to know that some, some tissue is um, certain time 
um, times in their recovery stages. Like, you know, ligaments respond differently to muscles, muscles to differently to tendons and, and bones and cartilage respond differently to, to all four. And so not all injuries are going to be created equal and not all rehab plans are going to be created equal. I think that's where I think maybe some personal trainers run into a bit of, bit of strife with their, with their patients or their clients in that they, they may um, put all, all their clientele under the same, same umbrella um, where we need to be a bit more flexible and, now thinking in um, if you have a muscle strain for example that you're rehabilitating um, you can be a bit more aggressively with that compared to a tendon a chronic tendon that needs some more care and, and more uh, rest in between sessions of high intensity sessions too whereas a muscle can probably push be pushed a little bit harder can be strengthened a bit harder but tendons have to be treated a bit differently same thing with bones and cartilage as well um, so I think I think importantly regardless of our limitations we all need to work together and I think that's where communication really needs to come together as well. So if you've got a, a client that you're working with who is injured, it's important that if you're a personal trainer, you're reaching out to a therapist to say, hey, look, what can this person do? And importantly, the, the onus is on the physiotherapist to, um, to reach out to the personal trainer as well. This person's got this type of injury and they probably need to be a bit careful with this type of exercise. Um, or you know, don't too, don't do too much of the, this this work because reactive tendon they won't be able to handle four four sessions of plyometrics. They might be only able to handle one or two. Um, so the onus is on the physiotherapist checking about what the person um, could do that week. So yeah, look, I, I think there's each person just needs to communicate. But I think yeah, there's a big um, there's a lot to learn in terms of I guess that. The pathophysiology, pathophysiology behind something that um, uh, needs to be discussed and shared between both the physiotherapist and the personal trainer uh, to help the client move forward. That answers your question. I think I might have got a bit off track. No, that, that's 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 what we're here for. We're here to go all over the place. Um, but I think from my interpretation, it's it's part of that answer seems to be coming to the physio and communicating really thoroughly to understand, you know, when you're referring in and out, understanding their particular recommendations, but then also at the same time, putting the onus on the trainer to have their own education as well of understanding different uh, repair, remodeling and, and interventions with different types of tissue damage and injuries like tendon, ligament, muscle you said what is the best most succinct way to to learn those pillars yeah um without doing a degree for example yeah yeah i think it it certainly does need some advanced learning there but i think as a general rule of thumb you know ligaments have got a ligaments and muscles have got great blood supplies as as do bone most most bones some bones don't have the best blood supply but um, but generally speaking, bones have got a pretty good blood supply, ligaments have got a blood supply, muscles have got a good blood supply. So those tissues there are going to heal reasonably well and in a reasonably, reasonable short period of time. So somewhere between, you know, six weeks on average, you know, it's going to turn over new cells to make, make us have new, new tissue in that area. Um, what helps that tissue respond, though, is load. Um, you know, your body's got a great ability to grow and adapt if we impose load on it. Um, so, you know, those, those tissues there have got great blood supplies and have got a great ability to become stronger and more resilient and tougher. 
Tendons, on the other hand, have got a crappy blood supply. Um, so they're the ones. So an Achilles tendon, patella tendon, you know, lateral hips, elbow, elbow tendons, you know, shoulder tendons. They're a really crappy blood supply that um, makes it harder for them to heal. So, you know, from a time perspective, when we're dealing with someone with a tendon pathology, um, it, they're a little bit trickier and, and they're actually can be really um, difficult to, to treat in some cases, particularly if someone's unwilling to rest or if their training plan is all over the shop and they, they, they don't have a plan or they're, they're being brutally trained week in, week out. Um, and that tendon just doesn't get a chance to remodel and toughen up over time. Um, so for, a, you know, I guess general rule of thumb there, in expectation if someone's got a tendon injury, is it might take a good 12 weeks at least for them to overcome overcome that problem and get on the front foot with it to, to become a much more manageable condition. Um, so that, that would be a very simple, simple way to look at things. You know, things that have got a good blood supply, ligaments, muscles and bones, they heal really well. Um, tendons, crappy blood supply, don't heal well. Cartilage, no blood supply, doesn't heal well. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my sort of line of thinking when we're sort of dealing with uh, different injuries. No, well, that's great. That's well said. You summarized it, I think, however many hundreds of hours of education that took to come to, or maybe you didn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just summarized it really well. I wanted to ask, actually, I don't want to forget, um, do you ever use heat? in your recovery practices with musculoskeletal injuries because you know with the heat stress and sauna use never being bigger and all these amazing studies from finland and these nordic countries coming out um and it having such big benefit in reducing mm -hmm. systemic inflammation through heat shock proteins and vasodilation mm -hmm. blood flow capillarization do you think there could be something there to the application of heat early middle stage yeah yeah maybe um certainly um it's certainly with uh people with chronic pain i would i'd be sort of you know i tend to advocate for a little bit more if they if they you know, respond really well to heat and helps dull down their pain response and allows them to train and move and exercise i'll, I'll certainly use heat more to advantage i think from a recovery process it's probably something i haven't um worked enough with it from the athletic point of view i know with the athletes i've worked in the past we was kind of standard practice once training sessions done chuck them in the uh the 10 degree bath for, for 10 minutes and yeah or if they wanted to contrast in between cold and hot cold yeah. and hot for the 10 10 minutes after the session after games once again after the, after the games we chuck them in the you know the cold bath for you know however long they wanted or that contrast in and out but i think from a purely heat perspective yeah it's something i haven't really um tapped into before but if if there's some evidence out there to um to show that it's got some um some potential benefit yeah i think it's worth exploring a little bit more i think um yeah i think the only other yeah probably people would probably get nervous about is that heat in that really acute stage where you, you're basically going to encourage um a whole lot of extra blood flow and, and swelling to that affected area soon after the injury um you know like that that would probably be the only other thing but once again you know what comes with with blood is some some healthy tissue um, healing potential and growth factors and, and all these other helpful helpful cells um, to come along and help help the recovery. But um, I don't know. It'd be something something we need to to see see a bit more of and read a bit more of in, in the future. For sure. Um, no, I just wanted to get your two cents on that because uh, it is emerging. But on the the topic we were talking about before ACLs. 
this gets talked about so often and you deal with so many um, and then what's coming out now and that's in the emerging in these last five years especially is that hold on we don't actually need the ACL to mm. function and live mm. and this is mm. such a dogma that people yeah. have been opposed to you got to have the surgery surgeons got to yeah. make their money and um, physios are gonna well physios gonna be involved anyway but yeah. challenging this perspective on the worldwide basis is huge because there's so many people who still think you need the ACL, absolutely need yeah. to get surgery. Can you talk about, I want to break this down mm. so the whole world can hear mm. how a human being can function without their ACL and even other cruciate lig ligaments, how do you mm. know if they're cope or non-cope? Yeah, look, it's, it, it is. And unfortunately, there is, um, there is that dogma that, you know, if you injure your ACL, regardless of what kind of activity you're going back to, you need your ACL to function. And it's not right. It's, there's, it could be further from the truth. Like, I think, you know, once again, if I go back 10 years to my early, early years as an ACE, you know, working as a young physio, I remember probably hearing an orthopedic surgeon or two saying, look, if you're, if you're over the age of 40, you don't reconstruct. If you're under the age of 40, you do reconstruct. And it was kind of just, it was kind of like how it was. Um, but now, you know, the certainly the research is emerging and, and things are being challenged a lot about um, ACL injury management. And I think the important thing to know here is that patients have a choice. You know, you know unfortunately, they're not given that choice, though. Here in Australia, our reconstruction rates are probably up around 90 to 95% of all ACL injuries are offered reconstruction. In Scandinavia, you know, the reconstruction rate is as low as 50%. Whoa. So, you know, they barely reconstruct. And basically, they reconstruct on patients who prove themselves to be unstable. Yeah. Now, the, the, I think here in Australia and in many countries around the world, we don't give the person the opportunity to prove themselves to be unstable. They don't, we don't give them enough time to prove that they actually can be a, a coper and they, we, we don't give them enough time to prove that they can actually help themselves on rehabilitation alone. They're often injured the ACL within a matter of weeks they're having a reconstruction. And, and I, don't, I don't think that, it certainly isn't best, best practice. Now, it's gonna take a long time to change that mindset, but the, the person can absolutely live and function and live a normal, healthy life without an ACL. Now, the question remains is, can they return back to their pre-injury levels of sport that's without it. their ACL? Exactly. And that's a, that's a very, very difficult question to answer because some people can, some people can't. The people that can, the question then further remains is, will they have another instability episode that further worsens their knee? Do they go on to sustain a meniscus injury or a cartilage injury? Then that makes that, that which then makes their knee really crappy in years to come. Um, we that, that that's a that's a real risk. Um, but in saying that, those that have had a reconstruction, a reconstruction that doesn't guarantee that knee survival. It doesn't guarantee the meniscus survival or cartilage survival in the future either, because we know graft injuries are quite common as well. And second ACL injuries are very, very common on the other side as well within a matter of years. So surgery isn't 100% successful either. Um, so I, I think ultimately the knee can function without the ACL. We, we just need to allow that person to prove themselves. Now there is a, a classification system out there that we should be encouraging people initially to go through and, and, and it's to determine if they can be a potential coper. Um, now, a potential coper is someone who has the potential to cope and live their life and return back to some sport one way or another without their ACL. Now, that's generally 
done, if you look at the research, that, that test and that algorithm is really usually put place around about four weeks or six weeks post-injury when their knee is really settled. So they've got full range of movement, they've got their quad strength back, um, and they've got very minimal swelling. Now that COPA classification is two questionnaires. Um, it's asking the person if they've had an instability episode or not since their ACL injury. Um, and it's a six meter time hop test and, and making sure they're within 20% of their other side. Now, if they tick all those four boxes, they're a potential COPA and, and they're then encouraged into rehabilitation. Um, now, someone that fails on that algorithm and, and just fails on one of those things doesn't necessarily draw a line through them to say they can't go on to cope because we know that those that initially identified as a non-coper can actually change their coping status with high quality rehab and we can we can turn the corner with them in as little as six weeks we can turn them from a non-coper into a potential coper with six weeks of rehab um so in, in up to 50 percent of cases we can do that as well in really? some cases they, yeah some cases just may need even need more time they might need three months of rehabilitation um, to turn the corner from a potential non-coper into a potential coper. So I think that's the thing. Often people aren't offered high quality rehab after their ACL injury to prove if they can be a potential coper or in those that are actually even lucky enough, start to feel stable and clinically stable to, to, to prove they actually could try, start trying to train and play again. Um, so look, there's, there's just so much... Um, it misinformation out there and I think unfortunately a lot of people do get reconstructed too early and they aren't given a choice and they don't get it they don't get the opportunity to prove themselves to be um, a potential coper or prove themselves to have a crack at non-operative um, rehab for a long longer time than what they should now it's just a hard decision to make for someone who's really athletic that wants to play sport and wants to jump and land and pivot and play sport like but and especially a professional athlete it's very very difficult conversation to have um, because there's a lot of extra pressures put on that athlete like if you went to an afl club and someone tore their acl could almost guarantee they'll be having a reconstruction two days later if not a day later um because they're you know it's so gray in that return to sport they could roll the dice um, they could rehabilitate their knee really well. They could be back playing sport within nine weeks, like that elite level Premier League football player we've seen a case study of time and time again that we talk about. Um, they could play an extra two or three years without an ACL and have a great career. Conversely, they could also um, come back to sport within nine weeks, have a re-injury um, and a worse knee re-injury at that. And then that's you know now nine weeks behind schedule. Now, in a professional club environment, you won't keep your job very long if you've just now, now wasted nine weeks with an athlete because you've, you've tried to roll the dice or they've tried, tried to roll the dice. So it's a very difficult decision to try and help an athlete, a professional athlete, work through. And more often than not, the de default button will be, let's reconstruct and let's get that person back in a more black and white time frame. But for the other 99% of us who aren't working with elite athletes or aren't elite athletes, we should be given more of a choice when it comes to ACL injury management for sure. Beautifully said. I think that's so important what you just said, Mick, because what we and, and that idea is fighting against is, I'll give you an example, 
You have people who aren't as informed on the rehab. For example, I mentioned it before, Joe Rogan on his podcast goes out to millions and millions of people. He emphatically talked about, he's had surgeries like that. He emphatically talked about, if you do your ACL or something like that, just get the surgery done. And he he harped on that point he's many times. And like, this is the idea you're, we're fighting against of mm. someone that influential mm. with that big of an audience, which yeah. just makes that battle to climb up that hill so much harder. So how yeah. do you think that this idea on the other side gets yeah. traction? Yeah, it, it's hard. Like, I mean, I had, um, I've, I've been consulting with this lady based in Toronto just recently um, with, so she had an ACL injury back in January. And so before COVID, she'd met with, um, I think three surgeons and met with a couple of physios, all of whom said, you know, you need an ACL reconstruction. Now she's late twenties. All she wants to do is, you know, dance and run and go to the gym and do all these kind of things. And I said, when I had a consult with her because she couldn't see her physio, she couldn't, you know, do anything, go to the gym, for example. I said, look, the activities that you want to do lend themselves to, you know, absolutely should be offered a non-operative rehab here. But unfortunately, there's just this ingrained culture that, you know, an ACL injury is associated with a reconstruction. And that's going to take a long time to shift. Yeah, that mindset's yeah. going to be very, very long. And it, it doesn't help like when we've got professional athletes, you know, tear their ACL, they're having reconstruction the next the next day or two. You've got people with big uh, audiences like, like Joe Rogan, as you mentioned, who, you know, really advocate for ACL reconstructions. Like it, it's hard to, to try and get people to think that non-operative rehab is an option. Um, and it absolutely is. And, and it should be, should be something we encourage, if at the very least... Now, if we can rehabilitate that patient's knee soon after their ACL injury for at least three months, even if they choose to have a reconstruction, um, it's time not wasted because it's effectively really good preoperative rehab that's only going to better them many years down the track. And we've seen that many times over in research studies on preoperative rehab that if you go into that operation with a really strong and highly functioning knee, your quality of life and your function and your ability to return back to your pre-injury levels of sport are so much better than those that just have their ACL injury and then go into surgery a week later or a few weeks later. So rehab really matters. And if we can get that person for three months and talk to them about options and talk to them about extending their rehab pathway longer, um, then that's a pretty pretty big win. Is that your threshold? Three months to see if they're officially COPA or non-COPA? Um, generally six, six weeks minimum, um, but I, I, I'd love to have three months with every person that I've had and every person that I rehabilitate acutely. I, I, I really advocate for at least three months um, because in three months, you can get that person really strong and confident and you can also start weaving in jumping and landing and running to really boost their confidence even more to get them to say, hey, look, I actually don't feel too differently now. Um, and look, if they still want to have a reconstruction and they're still fixated on that, fine. But if they get to three months and they can jump and land and hop and you can show them that they actually can do these things without their ACL, then that's very, very powerful to the, to the person and hopefully allows their confidence to grow. And then if you can extend that out even longer, that that's, that's great. That, that's really, really great. And... I want you to, if you don't mind talking about a recent post you made about uh, ACL uh, can repair, right? Yep. And you showed these really great graphical images of this yep. MRI. And after four months, I'm actually going to put it on the screen for everybody. After four months, 
you had this all the all the tissue really nicely bundling up together. Can you talk about that case study? Yeah, for sure. Like he's um the the fellow in question. I won't name names or give anything specific, but he was a, a young man who who injured his ACL. He actually had another injury on his other side previously um, about two years ago. So he had a reconstruction on his other leg two years ago, um, and then it was. Was playing uh, was playing footy and tore his ACL on his other knee, which we, you see from the images there was his two-day post-injury MRI images, and so he 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 also had a, an MCL sprain as well, and so he saw the doctor and the doctor put him in a splint for two weeks, and then he and then said go see physio after two weeks and get get it moving, and so. Um, I, I caught up with him for the first time at two weeks and so we got it rehabilitating. One of the first things he said to me, he goes, I've, I've come to see you because I know you, you're an advocate for non-operative rehab and I don't want to have another reconstruction. So I said, all right, let's, let's get you moving. Let's get you rehabilitating. Let's get you strong. And so we just, got, we just got him moving. We got him strong. We got him into a rehabilitation plan that involved all the, all the good big rocks of squats and deadlifts and all the things that you should be doing, knee extensions, hemi curls, calf raises loading up appropriately. And then when I caught up with him at about the three and a half month mark, four month mark, I tested his knee again clinically because he was looking really good. He'd returned back to work and was looking really good. And I tested his knee and I said, feels quite stable here. It actually feels as, you know, the test that we do to determine if someone's got an ACL injury or not, it's called a Lockman test. So his Lockman test felt the same as what it felt like on his other, other side. So he's reconstructed knee was strong and stable, had an abrupt endpoint and a hard endpoint. And so had his recently injured side, his four month now post ACL injury knee had started to become clinically stable. So I was like, man, I, I think something's happening here. And, and he was in a position where, I mean, we, we routinely don't re-MRI things just to check and see, but he was really um, keen to, to explore that option to see if he was one of these you know lucky people who could heal and got his MRI back and, and it showed realigning of his fibres. Now, you know, that, that ligament still got a bit, of, at that, that time point, you know, four months, it's still got some healing to do, but the alignment of the fibres had started to look like how it should like. Yes, it needs to become blacker and look a little bit differently, differently over time, um, but that'll happen if we keep loading it. That body will continue to remodel new tissue over time, and hopefully by the end of 12 months, you know, if we were to if we were to re MRI the net 12 months, it'll look like a nice black line there instead of the the whiteness that you see in it. But I think there's this once again. So that was that was his case study, and he's now back playing basketball. Um, he, he's thinking about playing footy again. He's not 100 percent sure about footy, but he's back engaged in all his life. Um, his quality of life is great. He's playing basketball again. He's engaged with his mates and, you know, back to training and, and living a normal life again. And he's dodged a massive bullet. And I think, unfortunately, once again, we don't, we can't guarantee that people can heal, but it does happen a lot more frequently than probably what we're led to believe. Now, when I was at, once again, physio school, I was quoted at, you know, 1% of all ACL injuries can heal. I think, I think that number may be a bit higher than that. Um, we just don't give people the opportunity to prove themselves to be these lucky ones. Um, I don't know what the percentage of people that can heal are. Um, I know there are some case studies out there and there's some studies out there that show healing in, in certain certain populations. Um, 
Now, these aren't prospective randomised controlled trials, but they're nice case series of people who show signs of healing. So it does happen. Um, we just need people, once again, if, if people are going to heal, it's going to happen somewhere between months three and month, month six. And we'll see that visually on an MRI and clinically we'll start to pick that up from about month three onwards. And that's where I think if we allow people to rehabilitate um, for at least three months and then they can prove themselves to first be able to be a coper and then secondly, maybe become clinically stable, that, that's a huge win for everyone because it's um, it, it, we've potentially dodged surgery here and another trauma to the knee. And that's one thing we often forget is the ACL reconstruction is often traumatic for the knee, very traumatic for the knee. You've got to drill through the, the knee capsule. You've got to drill through bones. You've got to you know, take new harvest tissue from the hamstring or patella tendon or the quad tendon, which is a new insult to the body. You get new reactions, new inflammations. It's another trauma the knee's got to go through on top of the ACL injury. It's just previously gone through itself. So if we can limit the trauma to the knee, that knee is going to be a hell of a lot happier for you in 10, 15, 20 years time. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, yeah, I think, I, yeah, that's, hopefully that sheds a bit of light. Absolutely. And I put the images up so people could see, and it really, I think it makes tearing your ACL a lot less scary because yeah. surgery is pretty intimidating for a lot of people, especially if they've never done it. You know, like you mm. said, there's multiple trauma sites, you're going through bone. Well, now we have this amazing option where you don't have to get it. You can try and see. And I yep. think in my perspective, and it sounds like your perspective, that should be the first option because this is not just an idiosyncratic like individual decision. It's systemic in the fact that it affects a medical system and it takes a little bit of burden off a medical yeah. system, which is yes. benefits both parties. Yep, that's right. And I think um, that that's a really important message that, yeah, it's, it's less burden, potentially less burden to the greater healthcare system, you know, if we're not reconstructing every ACL that walks through the door. Now, look, it must be it must be said that not all ACL injuries can be offered a non-operative pathway because there are some other other injuries that are sustained at the time that do lend themselves to, to needing a reconstruction. Like if you have an ACL injury and you've got also a pretty big meniscus tear that's able to be salvaged, or if you've got a cartilage injury there that can be repaired, those things really take precedence over the ACL injury. Um, because it's the meniscus injury and the cartilage injury is the thing that's going to um, develop knee osteoarthritis in years to come. Um, not necessarily the ACL. The ACL just provides stability. It, it stops the, the tibia drawing forward. It stops the external rotation. So, you know, in theory, the ACL, without an ACL, you get extra movement there, which then can add to shear. But that muscular system from the quads and the hamstrings and the propio proprioceptive input and the glutes, all these things can make up for that loss of ligament tissue um, if it doesn't restore again. But, you know, like if we can limit limit the trauma and allow the muscles to really get that rehab up to a high quality to provide that knee better stability, then that's, that's a win. But unfortunately for some people, there's going to be ongoing instability there. And if there has been some instability there that's, you know, tearing the meniscus or making that cartilage worse, then, then that can be a problem. Now, case in point once again recently i had a non-operative guy it's not all rainbows and and sunshine with our acl reconstructed or acl injured patients i had a case where i had a, a guy who was going non-operative um he was about four months post injury he was doing some jumping and landing stuff at home and he, he had a trip and a stumble and his knee buckled and he he tore his meniscus um and so he had a meniscus repair just recently so 
it's it's one of these things that not all things play out well. That's very so, honest of you to say because from the sounds of it, he was hmm. doing something you prescribed, like an exercise program, very basically, yeah. and he got injured from it. And one, yeah. I have a lot of respect for you, Mick, for mentioning that because that's a vulnerable position as a as a physiotherapist and coach. It's like not everything we do is going to work. Sometimes, no, that's right. It fucks up. That's right. And he, um, you know, like he he ticked all the boxes along the way, and he'd been strong, he'd been stable, he'd proved it, proved himself at other other exercises along the way, and. Unfortunately, and this isn't the first time. Like, I mean, I have, I've had other people return back to training and sport, going non-operative, who have had little instability episodes, who've dodged a bullet. They were they were lucky that they didn't worsen the knee the next time around. So they they, they got quite lucky. But for this young young fellow here, he um he unfortunately when he had his little instability episode the next time around, he he did um, tear his meniscus, and so. Um, yeah, so he had he had a meniscus repair uh, done. So it's it's, it's the, these things happen along the way. It, but everyone needs to to know what the risks and the benefits and the harms are, and and potentially if everyone's you know on board with that, then let, let's go, let's re, let's let's rehabilitate and let's get things moving. Is, um, is that why you can stay a bit emotionally detached from it because you've talked about? all of the pros and cons like this may happen for example i'm trying to allude to the fact that you know sometimes as health professionals we can feel i mean at least me i feel guilty like it's my responsibility if like my client or athlete fucks up like i put that on me like if i'm going to take their success i'm going to take their failures Um, and and maybe that's not always the best way to think about it but how do you detach any ill feeling or guilt like man maybe i could have should have done that differently I, i feel like you feel bad about yeah, yourself. It, it's hard, and and I've, I've probably had that experience a couple of years ago too. Like with um, the net, when I worked with netball, we had an ACL reconstructed athlete at netball, and she had a second ACL injury um, to her other side when when I was there as part of the club. And I, I took that to heart. I was um, yeah. I, I I was going through all her programs and all her tests and all that kind of stuff because I, I just couldn't sleep well at night, just knowing that I, I thought of maybe I'd contributed to her second ACL injury and I'd go through all the data and I was just like, man, I, I, yeah, I was, yeah, I was pretty, pretty gutted by that. And it's, that was probably a key learning moment for me because going through all that, it made me sort of realize, look, I'd, sometimes you just, you, you can't avoid injuries. Sometimes you can't, um, you, as long as you're doing everything to the best of your ability and you are keeping your own, um, you know, you're doing things as best practice as much as possible and you're not going rogue and you're not being completely cowboy. Um, if you're doing things each and every day that make you sleep well at night, then you can, you know, sometimes bad, bad luck, bad luck happens and sometimes shit happens to, you know, to, to the best of us. Um, but as long as you are doing your best job each and every day for your athletes and then that, and you can go to sleep well at night knowing that, then you're doing a wonderful job. And I think if you go, and, and this has been, like I said, this is a learning experience for me is that, you know, if, some, if a second ACL injury happens, you know, I, I don't probably go trawling through my data again, trying to figure out was there a reason why. Sometimes these things unfortunately just happen uh, regardless of what your input is. But as long as you're doing your best each and every session for that athlete, then you can you can always you know, hold your head up high and say, I've, I've, I've tried my best, I've done my best. And unfortunately, this was just one of those unlucky things. You trust your process now, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and look, oh, I was devastated for the young fella just before who who did. Because you care, right? Me. You care. Yeah. We care. Yep. 
That's it. Yeah, and and it sucks that he's you know had to have a surgery and a, and a subsequent ACL reconstruction. But I think if we don't talk about these things, we we sort of live in this um uh this world where we we probably um are probably giving false hope to all our athletes too because you know if we don't share these experiences to say hey look we've got we've got great outcomes that can be had but unfortunately we're going to occasionally have some bad outcomes too where you might have an instability episode with your non-operative rehabs and sometimes they might they may get worse and that's the risk now as, as long as you're having these open discussions then um you're doing your job yeah you're doing the best you can have you did you have you heard of an athlete called shando earl nrl athlete yeah yeah i know him, know him really, really reasonably well well okay to share a quick anecdote um christian woodford from woodford sports science consulting he managed his return to sport yeah. after yep. his ban and as you would have heard and if for those listening who haven't heard Shandor did his ACL many years before that when he was younger, right? He was getting in the best shape of his life. I was there documenting that process in the return a video series yeah. that I created. So I got to see the week to week and really get detailed and see exactly yeah. how these guys work. And I was in the, the facility when Christian got a phone call after Shandor was already going back to prepare for the season. He got his yeah. phone call and Shandor said, man, I got some bad news. I did mm-hmm. my ACL again. And I was there and Christian just broke down right and he's talked about this i know he doesn't mind me sharing it yeah yeah like that's a clear case of like he felt bad he felt guilty he felt confused like we did everything we could and i just tried to tell him it's not your fault man because at the end of the day it's like we were there like we got the whole thing documented like sometimes you do everything you can and just shit happens yeah that's it that's it i think if we if we take that um if we take that that those examples to heart we we've um we won't sort of progress as 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 humans we, we probably won't get better as coaches and we won't get that thicker skin that we need sometimes to uh to keep pushing ahead because if we if we allow that one experience to uh hold us back we, we won't be looking after everyone else very well um yeah no i remember that case and i, I worked with the melbourne storm uh, i did some work experience with them at the start of last year and i talked to sandor a few times about his acl journey and got to meet him a few times and, and discuss that and uh, i know woody reasonably well too so yeah i remember and it was yeah i was i was gutted at the time for everyone involved it was um it was a sad case but you know look look at look at sandor now he's doing great things and yep yep that's an awesome story um cool. but i want to be respectful of your time mick like i'd love to keep chatting if, if you're free oh, yeah. and available to are you yeah yeah, good? yeah, I got uh, yeah, I got a little bit more time to go. Yeah, all good. Awesome. Yeah. If you got to yeah. go, just just let me know. Yeah. I wanted to talk about a uh, well, get your thoughts on it. upper cross or lower cross syndrome. Um, I don't know if you use it as a tool previously, or you look at mm. it as a diagnostic tool now, or or it's just is it a real phenomenon or just some like biomechanical scapegoat? Because now I'm starting to hear both sides of the story and i'm trying to pass out the truth what are your thoughts on it yeah um i don't know i i, I don't get uh, yeah syndromes and trains and all that kind of stuff i just i don't know if i'm just not smart enough to understand it i just don't do it <laughs> like i just if i if i see an impairment i work on it um and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but i just do what things that work for me i i, I don't be honest to answer the question I don't, I don't know if it exists or not um i don't tend to sort of um let it dictate my rehab programs or my sessions i know some some coaches and physios like to sort of you know do 
Um, but for me, what work what works well for me with my I guess my rehab planning, um, I just keep it pretty simple. I, I keep it simple. I, I focus on you know the the B the, the key lifts. I work on impairments. Um, I make sure unilateral training's in there. I, I try to just work on those really all important, you know, 99 percenters, you know, get strong, um, load up efficiently, you know, get good sleep, you know, get fit, get conditioned for the demands of the sport, eat well, try to minimise stress, all those kind of things and, and just get the job done and, and consistency. Like, yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of confusion out there, unfortunately, that can make um, clinicians a little bit, um, confused as to what they can do and can sometimes make people freeze um when it comes to programming planning so um i keep things simple yeah yeah look that's great because i think you know uh, what a lot of people even yourself don't know we're actually redesigning our whole cert three and four and trying to make it the most comprehensive thing that is available in australia mm. and that involves mm. asking these questions what is important what is not and, and i mm. think just the fact that a professional with such your experience even approaches those types of things in that way like very foundational simple it makes us think well what is what is it for what how useful really is it or is it just adding more confusion to the pie yeah yeah i I do wonder about that especially um yeah you you see i see a lot of stuff on social medias with you know with certain types of bands or exercise equipments or you know whatever it may be but i think you know if you just sort of stick to the basics you know just good consistent exercise programming um fundamental movements and lifts and and good programming and progressive overload like that's just going to be such a such an important part of their rehabilitation journey and i think we sometimes do get ourselves lost in a lot of the cool stuff that's out there on the internet and i think if we just stick to the main basic stuff we're going to do a great job for our patients and athletes well said well said um the basics works. The fundamentals work. Yeah, we just try and, we try and make things way more complex than they are, don't we? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Sometimes, yep. Um, I've got a question from uh, a, a Facebook Live. Someone is listening. Joe Ryan. He's asked, should uh, the PT and SNC coach be doing check and retest methods if their client has a mobility slash joint capsule soft tissue restriction? Um. Oh. You can if you want. I guess you know, what are you going to do with it if you if you see it? Um, yeah, look if they got a if they've got a stiff knee, if they've got a stiff stiff hip, stiff ankle, yeah, you can you can assess it to see if it is stiff compared to the other side. I, I guess then the question asks, you know, what what are you going to do with it? And is it within your skill set? Mm. Um, is it inside your scope of practice? Um, well, let's sure. talk like about if, that. Like, yeah. like, is that insulting to do stuff like that? Is that disrespectful? Is that outside yeah. the scope? If, if they've got the training, if you've got, you know, if you've if, if you've done some postgraduate courses or you've done some work weekend workshops to help improve mobility uh, at a joint or within a tissue, yeah, as long as it's it's operating within your profession's scope of practice and and you and you're skilled in that area, yeah. I mean, I I don't. I don't do a lot of manual therapies myself at the best of times, especially once again, probably because it's biased. I'm biased towards that ACL reconstructed patient who's, you know, four months, six months post-op struggling with their rehab planning. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily see a need to do a whole lot of, you know, knee mobilizations or ankle mobilizations or hips or a lot of soft tissue work. What that person is coming to me with is frustration because they don't have a plan. So I just, 
talk to them about their plan and get that plan in place and get them get them moving forward. So I can't speak for the wider physio community here, but um, yeah, look, if, if you've got the skill set and, and it's within your scope of practice, yeah, by all means, I, I don't I don't particularly have a problem with that. Well, that leads in really well, like because there are a lot of trainers and and young coaches who claiming skill set in rehab or injury prevention you know on their, their cv for example in their bios but what do you think should be the minimum level of knowledge qualification or experience before competently and confidently claiming that you are you are well versed in injury prevention and rehab yeah um yeah it's a good that's a good one look i think i think you need a lot of years and a lot of skin in the game really i think from a rehab perspective i think if you're if you're a you know if you're a personal trainer maybe within second or an snc coach within two or three years upon graduating i think i think you may not be experienced enough i think we're, we're going to be sort of dealing with someone that's been around for five plus years um and working consistently with injured athletes yeah. like yeah. yeah look i mean even now I mean, I've been lucky enough in the last, you know, four or five years to largely see ACL injured patients. I'm seeing probably when I'm working face to face with patients and before COVID hit, I was sort of seeing somewhere between about 30 ACL reconstructed patients a week. Um, you know, so I was, I was seeing a, a, fair, a fair few. And so I think that's allowed me to become, um, you know, very experienced and confident in, in treating ACL injured patients, that's taken a long time to get to that to get to that level. So, yeah, look, I, I think it's it takes, yeah, I'd, if to give to give you a time frame, I'd say five years. I think you'd need at least five years to be able to call yourself a really competent rehab coach um, and and to, or a injury prevention coach or whatever it may be. But, but not also, just five years of coaching, right? It's like, because then I could call myself that, yeah. but I don't feel competent to do that because my quality yeah. of my hours have not been majority in rehab and That's injury right. management. Yeah. So talk about yeah. like the quality of what the hours are is important. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think, you know, the last podcast I did before is like the jack of all trades, master of none. Like I think, if you've got a passion in a particular area, like I mean, it's hard to, depending on where you live. Like I think we're lucky here in Melbourne, and I'm very lucky to be living here in Melbourne and, and to be able to see so many ACL injured patients. And if you lived in the country, you're not going to have that same um, amount of ACL injured patients walking in your door each and every week. Um, I certainly wouldn't be anyway. So you, you do need to be a bit more of a generalist, depending on where you, where you live and work. Um, but I, I think if you want to be a rehab coach, for example, then you sort of need to be aligning yourself with a physiotherapist, for example, and and receiving referrals or a, or a doctor or a sports doctor or a, um, you know a, an orthopedic surgeon, and you're re- receiving referrals from acutely injured patients all the time or acute you know, post-op surgical stuff all the time, um, and, and seeing at least probably 20 patients a week, you know, at least of you know rehabilitation and you know if it's a if it's a variety of things great you know if it's all you know if it's a lot of hips and knees and ankles great even better but if you're seeing it you know backs and shoulders and all sorts of different things but you're helping to rehabilitate a patient with a the low strength base and the low fitness base and you're taking that person from the from the from the absolute basement of their performance through to the floor and then to the ceiling to quote tim gabbett's sort of um analogy there i think you need to be looking after a lot more people in the basement 
um, and helping them out of the basement up to the floor if we want to keep if we want to call ourselves uh, you know probably a, a good rehab coach right well said um, but then there's this you know physiotherapy you know at least high quality ones like yourself seem to practice that you know it, it's best done on the gym floor rather than on the consulting table like you don't do a lot of manual therapy um, which then leads into do, how do you think the fields will merge strength and conditioning personal training and physiotherapy exercise science do you anticipate them to merge or do you also anticipate always anticipate there to be them separate fields we always just refer to each other and learn from each other yeah i, th- I think they'll always remain separate and, and i think yeah, I think that I think that will, and I think the physio physiotherapy bread and butter is still very important. You know, like our ability to assess and diagnose musculoskeletal conditions, and obviously physiotherapy. We've got more than just being a musculoskeletal physio or a sports physio. We've got great physios working in hospitals on the cardiorespiratory wards and the neuro wards, and with geriatrics and pediatrics and stuff like that. But I think from the private practice physiotherapist, I think we've still got that important role to play in in assessing and diagnosing a lot of um, injuries, particularly acute ones, chronic ones as well, and managing that. But I think the what we're starting to see a trend in now is the, the physiotherapist who's got also a clinic with a gym. Mm. Uh, and that's where, that's a wonderful resource to have. And that's where we've got the ability now to, you know, really use exercise professionals, personal trainers, S&C coaches, exercise physiologists together to help better our athletes and patients that that we're looking after rather than sort of keeping it very fragmented and within silos where you know the physio will only look after look after them for the first six to 12 weeks and then say okay here you go go see the exercise physiologist there's certainly some merging of phases and merging of time points where I think we need to learn to work together as as a whole, rather than um, yeah, dividing our dividing ourselves and Absolutely. trying. To, How do we do that? Yeah. How do we optimize this process, especially the new personal trainers that we work with, that we teach? How do we develop this strong allied health network together? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't have the answers. I don't think. Um, look, I think importantly. If you do have an interest in in the area, I get a lot of people come to say, "Look, can I, um, you know, can I shadow you for you know a week, or can I, you know, be mentored by you, or can I come and you know see you in the clinic and you know, have a day here, have a day there?" I think that's a great great way to start opening up those conversations with personal trainers and SNC coaches and young physios, and I think that that's kind of where we need to go with it to understand each other's roles and each other's skill set. Like I think if 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 you, you know, you go, if you've got a physio in your local area, you know, you go and see what they do for a day. Or if you know a physio that's got a, a passion in, in the area that you also enjoy treating and looking after, go spend a few days with them and get to understand them, get them to talk shop and, and showcase your talents as well. Like, you know, like if we don't know what you can do, then we're not going to refer to you, you know, kind of thing. And we're not, you know, we're not going to be able to refer to you because we, we need to sort of know that we can work together. We can understand where, where your philosophies lie and what your sort of, you know, treatment methods lie. You know, we, we, we need to be sort of working together as a team and you got to understand where we're coming from as well. So it's, um, I think that's important, particularly for the, for the new, the newish grad personal trainer or an S and C coach or exercise physiologist. I think there's, there's some, some, um, some ways forward there just by simply spending some time and, and having some discussions with um, the physio. And I think the best place to do that is on the job. 
rather than sort of, you know, meet up for a coffee necessarily or, you know, like actually see it in real time, you know, get them to see what a treatment session looks like or a rehab session looks like and, and discuss things as, as the person's working out in front of you. I think that's probably the best time best time to learn. I think it's phenomenal advice. That is super practical because everybody can hit up their local good physio and everybody yeah. can hit up their local gym on the other side. Physio yep. can go shadow the coach. Coach can go shadow the physio. We'll learn from yep. each other. Develop yep. a network, friends. Yep. yep. There we go. That's it. Yep. It's, it, it doesn't take that much. Like One of the simplest things I did when I moved to Melbourne and probably taking it the next step above is like when I moved to Melbourne, I didn't know anyone down here. And so and I didn't have a network of orthopedic surgeons that, you know, I was looking to get referrals from, you know. So I went and watched, you know, four or five orthopedic surgeons do knee surgery um, and hip surgeries and shoulder surgeries and just to talk shop and, you know, let you know, have a have a chat to them whilst they're on the whilst they're on the job. So I think that's one of the simplest things that any anyone can apply that method into a different field. And I think if if you're looking to work with a physio and you want to you know work with your athletes with your physiotherapist, that's the simplest way forward. Is put your hand up and get in contact with them and say, hey, look, can I spend some hours with you? Can you know can I come and see you with some patients? Or you know can I actually sit in on the consultation with my my athlete that I'm looking after? You know you're you're looking after him as well or him or her as well. Can I come in and sit on the consult so I can understand what the what the rehab plan is so I can then put it into practice outside of your face to face time? I think it's it's um that's how relationship relationships are developed and that's how i think how we're going to grow um as a profession for, for both sides of the professions agreed that you well mm. said uh in case of you personally someone comes to you and mm. they look up to you they want to be you know on the level that you are and aspire to be you know a mick hughes type of uh, coach and physiotherapist mm. um would you go back and do your path differently whether it's your tertiary education would you tell that younger mick hughes who want or someone who wants to be in your shoes that hey maybe you shouldn't do, actually do this or do that or do all this education in, in a degree maybe it's better to do these certifications in this or over here what do you yeah think? yeah look i think i think there's a need for some formal qualifications but i think and and look i've i've so i finished physio school and with it within I think three years later, I was doing a postgrad sports physiotherapy, and then that led on to the masters and and that kind of stuff. But I think all along the way too, I've tried to seek out where possible, um, you know, volunteering my own time to try and you know, you know, talk to, um, talk to, you know, spend some time on in the operating theatres, you know, watching orthopedic surgeons do their work, or you know, try to um, shadow some more experienced physiotherapists in the way they practice, um, or spend times and volunteer time at my own merits knowing that you know like this this time i'm going to volunteer my own time to go and watch a you know sporting team do their thing so i can sort of get a better understanding of the sports demands i think there's i think that would be something oh, i wouldn't change because that's kind of like the stuff that i do but i think there's this um i think that's where we all need to be going as as new grads if, you, if you've got a thirst for knowledge and you want to be that type of physio or that type of coach we need to be proactively seeking out um, that mentoring opportunity or that experience and understand you're probably not going to get paid for it. You know, like I, I'm not, I'm not at all um, saying, you know, go and take a, an internship at a, at a professional club where you get flogged for 30 hours a week for no pay. Like I, I hate those positions that are advertised and I think it's, it sucks to the, the wider community. But if you want to learn something, you know, go and seek out, you know, people who have experience in their chosen field and, and try to, you know, get to know, 
what they do and, and how they've become who they've become and, and, and share that information and, and, and sit back and watch. Uh, I think that's a very simple strategy that we can all all do to better ourselves. And I, and I still, where possible, try to go out and still watch ACL reconstruction surgeries where, where I can and to still spend time with some more experienced physios than me and talk shop. Um, so I think no matter how old we are in our, in our field and, and in our profession, there's still an opportunity to grow. Like some of the best, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with Tim Gabbett and listen to him talk and and share his experiences. And my good mate Randall, who's 10 10 years my senior, like his experiences working in elite sport as well has been amazing. But also those other softer skills too that you learn up along the way. I think that's a valuable lesson to learn as time grows on is those communication skills and those softer skills. I I think they're the things that really come with time. Um, Yeah, so. Has there been one in particular that you know, was a previous kind of weakness hole in your bucket that you, you've had to realize and fill? Yeah, oh, definitely. The softer skills, like just that, what we talked about before, you know, like that ability to adapt a program to suit the person who's just busy, you know, that, you know, yeah. what we, that, that person who I just now give two exercises to, you know, like that's, that's something that's come along with time. And if, you know, 10 years ago as a new grad, you know, I was pretty regimented and fixated in my programming design and my rehab design and all that kind of stuff. Cause I, I didn't have kids back then. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have a busy job. You know, like I, I now get it when I meet a person for the first time and they're in their mid thirties, they got three kids and a busy job. You know, look, I, I now understand that time is very precious. So, you know, you try to sort of fit in your, your plans that's going to help them within their chaos. So, yeah, that's, that's being adaptable. And, that, and that, they're the softer skills that I've learned over time is to be flexible um, with, that, with that side of things. Yeah, that's so important. I think especially as a younger coach, um, to hear from someone so much more experienced than yourself because we get excited to, to share and we don't have the empathy and compassion and understanding of, like you said, you had to learn it when you became a father and got, had a family. But once you hear it from something, it's like, yes, we have to remember that when I'm working with that clientele who is working 50, 60 hour weeks, has children, or is just generally higher, higher, more highly strung and stressed, it's a time to adapt. And that's what yeah. all of us are having to do now during this pandemic. Um, thankfully, yeah. allied health professionals, as far as I understand, can continue to deal with their patients. Um, hmm. Personal trainers, gyms closing, different. How yeah. how do you think, how have you adapted? How can people adapt to this time? What is the, I mean, we talked about it before we went live. What's the hmm. opportunity here in the adversity where people can learn from and thrive under these new conditions? Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, I've sort of been a bit torn through through this. Like I, I've been, I've probably lost a little bit of my face to like what I'd normally see in the clinic and the patients that I was offering telehealth services too, like I probably have lost a, a fair bit of that patient load. Now, whether or not they just got better by themselves or just happy just to let this all ride out, you know, until it's all over, you know, it, it, that's fine. But I think the opportunities that arose, especially for me during this time, was to um, gain more clientele outside of Melbourne. So I've been consulting with patients interstate overseas during this time and doing a lot more telehealth consultations with people that I've never met before. So, so I've, I've grown that sort of side of things. Uh, I've got 30, 30 new patients that I've picked up along the way over the last, you know, two months. Um, so that, that's been a really cool thing to come out of 
you know, the, the silver lining to come out of this is I've been able to sort of to do that. But um, I think for, for all of us, I think there's certainly that, you know, what we're dealing with now may be a new normal for us all. We may be able to deliver um, telehealth services or personal training services services or SNC services um, online. And I know that's been around for a long time. There's been online coaching and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how effective it is from a personal training perspective because you may not be able to, you know, touch and cue and all those kind of things. But from a physio point of view, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing online is probably no different to how I would normally do it in the clinic anyway with good quality information, um, good education, information. And you can see how someone moves quite nicely with you know, on a video in front of you. So there's just that sense of being adaptable to our current way of life and, and sort of think big picture, you know, like that's one opportunity here for everyone here is even if you're based in Melbourne, you know, why contain yourselves to your geographical boundaries now, you know, showcase your talents, you know, interstate worldwide and, you know, start looking to attract people, you know, for your services, you know, over internationally, you know, why, you know, don't, you know, think, think big picture here. I think there's, there's an opportunity for that. Um, with um, with a little bit less of face-to-face stuff going on. But you've also, too, now got this opportunity if you're finding yourself a little bit more quieter from the face-to-face stuff to allow yourself to read more, mm-hmm. to listen more, to learn more, and to share that knowledge as well, you know, you know doing stuff like this, um, you know, writing blogs, um, doing that kind of stuff. Like, I think, I think um, there's a good opportunity there, too, in, in the right individual. I, I tried to do that. Like, I tried to be really productive in this time, but... I think in the end I was trying to, I was getting burned out a little bit, trying to sort of keep myself busy and trying to be really productive when, you know, I've got two young kids and a, and a busy wife and a busy life around me. Like I was just got to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm just here for survival now. I just want to get through and just make sure we come out of this in a good place. And I think too, like if you're not productive, you know, don't, don't feel like you need to be super productive through this time because this is quite tough for some people as well so you know in in that in that setting too maybe it's just an opportunity to sit back and just learn and reflect mm-hmm. um, especially if you can't produce if you're just too busy you know maybe listen to more podcasts or maybe do some more reading um, outside of health you know maybe look at some different different authors you know maybe di- read different books that you normally wouldn't read rather than textbooks maybe just look at you know maybe some business side of things or maybe some philosophical side of things or you know just you know, do, do something a bit broader from what you currently would sort of absorb absorb day in, day out. Because um, I think there's a few of us out there too that might feel the pressure to produce stuff when we just, you know, just can't. Yeah. So in, in those people, just just get through. You know, do what you can, survive, get through, read, get, get better at, at the end of it. Um, but for those that do have the ability to produce, you know, go, go for it. Go, go nuts, you know, do whatever you can do. But also, too, don't be scared to go big um, as well. Go big and go broad. But having the self-awareness to know which yeah, which one you are. Yeah, exactly. And you yeah. maybe <laughs> feel different in a month. Yes, that's right. Yeah, like the first few weeks, I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a webinar. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Two or three weeks in, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just getting frustrated here because I can't do what I want to do. And so I just went, no, I'm just going to put everything to bed. I'm just going to do what I can. I'm going to just chip away slowly at things um, and just worry about sort of looking after my own sort of personal health, my own family, um, look after my own patient load that I've got. You know, I've got new ones coming in. That's great. Um, I think that's 
for me, that that's where I've gone. But like like you were saying, you know, you've been able to do do lots and lots of different things, and that's great. And I think there's be a lot more people like you out there that've got that opportunity as well. But have that self awareness to know which which side of the fence yeah. you're sitting. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like like it depends what you want out of this life. We're going to get a bit philosophical here, but it really depends. Like, what do you want to happen? If you want great things to happen, you have to do things regardless of how you feel. I believe that. Otherwise, I wouldn't do half the things I do because a lot of the times you don't always want to do the thing, but you know you have to do the thing because it's good for you because it's going to be short-term pain, long-term gain. Yeah. I mean, that's at least what I've learned. Um, and then I wanted to... Th- also ask you before we finish up is is are you content mccues like as a professional like mm. i'm always wonder when people are in the industry for a long time you mm. know where do you go from here or do you not even think about that you know what i just focus on my clientele day to day week to week i'm content i just want to do my service best i can or yeah. are you trying to build something bigger and better and i don't know yeah um yes and no like i from a from a physio perspective i'm I'm pretty content, but I'm also um, self-aware to know that there's um, a danger in being content. And if you just do do what you do all the time, you'll you'll quickly um, fall behind. Um, and I think there's just in this current day and age of information sharing and lots of research being produced, particularly with ACLs, there's you know, new stuff being published all the time. So I think. Importantly for me, I, I, I keep it abreast of that to make sure I'm still keeping up and being a best practice clinician. Because if I, you know, look, if I stop reading journal articles today and just keep practicing the way that I normally do, in two or three years' time, I'm going to be behind the eight ball. I'm going to be out of date. So I need to be up to date and, and keep keep going and keep growing and, and keep learning and, and adapting all the time to make sure my patients are receiving their best care. So I guess... Professionally, for me, I'm not seeking a PhD or going out and trying to be a professor or anything like that. And I think I just want to look after my patients in the clinic and, and do the best I can for them. Um, I think broader, you know, from a business perspective, yeah, I've, you know, I've got goals of trying to grow. Um, we've got Learn.Physio as our online learning platform to share masterclasses and videos. And from that point of view, I've I really want to see that grow um, and, 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 and be a, um, a platform that people will go to to, to seek um, online learning opportunities. Can because, you talk about you know, what that is? I'm not familiar. And I think, you know, uh, a few yeah, people won't. Yeah, no, it's fine. So it's Physio. Basically, it's um, – yeah, that's the website address, Physio. It's um, basically a platform where at the moment we've got some online masterclass videos. So we've got two ACL videos, one ACL reconstruction and one non-operative masterclass. And we've got Tim Gabbett. Uh, I sat on the couch with Tim Gabbett. We talked about load management. And so basically we, we provide a two to three hour video discussing the latest research with uh, experts in their chosen field. And people can just watch them anytime, anywhere as long as they've got an internet connection um, for professional development purposes. So if you're a, a personal trainer, SNC coach, physiotherapist, exercise physiologist here in Australia, um, you can get professional development development points to watch these masterclasses as well. Instead of having to go to a weekend workshop or go to an evening lecture, you can just log on, jump online and and watch the videos and, and, and maintain that development. So... We've just got three videos there at the moment, but we want to see that grow. 
Um, and our philosophy to that is we want to have two experts sitting on the couch talking about the research, but also from their practical experiences as well. Um, and that, that's, that's our that's our website there, which we want to want to sort of see see good in, in years to come. And I think now uh, now is I guess critical time as ever, where you're not going to see weekend workshops for potentially some time. You know, that's uh, moving forward into the future. People will be seeking out these online learning opportunities a little bit more more frequently. So hopefully, we can sort of allow that. Um, not, not that we're the first in the market. There's many more other people out there in the market as well. But um, we, we want to be that point of difference where um, we've got two people talk um, about their own experiences and sharing you know, high-quality information to, a, uh, to the masses. Oh, that's awesome. I'm looking at all the variety here. It's like multi-hour yeah. conversations you're having with, with experts. Yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. So the non-operative one was fantastic. We got to sit down with... Uh, um, Olvenor, who's an ACL expert in um, in post-traumatic osteoarthritis, and hearing him talk about his experiences and research in the field for over an hour was great. And hearing about Brooke Patterson's experiences working with AFL Women's and their injury prevention program design, um, that was fantastic. But also the research around that that space too was fantastic to hear. And obviously talking shop with the mate Randall, um, sitting on the on the couch with Tim Gabbett for a couple of hours talking about London and some of the myths about that. That was wonderful. Um, a huge insight as to um, load monitoring and training loads. That was, that was fantastic. So that, that's point to go. We want to grow that and sort of take it outside of just ACLs and into shoulders and hips and knees and awesome. hamstrings and all sorts of different that's things. That's a great resource. I didn't know you did that. But there, that's where we want to, yeah, but that's where I think from, from my own personal perspective, that's where I want to see that growth and, and development. But from a clinical point of view, just need to keep busy, keep keep on top of it. So my patients are, are still receiving their best possible care as years to come. Awesome. I appreciate that, Mick. I guess the last thing is the cliche, uh, but important. Um, young coach, allied health professionals and PTs now entering the fitness industry, what do you tell them? How do you overwhelming with all the stuff there is out there yeah. unlimited opportunity though but it's hard what do you tell them yeah yeah look i think the big one is just be patient don't don't try to you know i think that was my biggest thing as a new grad was i tried to be i wanted to be on top of my field and on top of my game within three years five years like it takes time to develop the skill set that you need to be a great clinician or a great help for the time like i i remember you know one year out two year out thinking i could be the head physio for this sporting club i was working up up in north queensland and i was like yeah i, I could do this i could be a professional i could be the head physio for any sporting club i've got the skill set i know what to do like it's only now like really up until a job at collingwood with with the netball team it wasn't only it wasn't until then that i felt like i actually had the skill set to, right, to how be many that years person in the industry did it take for you to come to that Six. Uh, well, I was a physio for six years, but I'd been an exercise professional for over 10. Um, you know, like I, I finished exercise back in 2002. I completed my physio studies in 2010. And it wasn't until 2016 where I thought, you know what, I actually do have the skill set now be that head physio for a sporting club. Um, but, you know, like when I was one year out, two years out, I was like, I could do this. But in reality rubbish like if someone offered me a position 
to be the head physio for a professional club or even a even a, a part-time physio at a professional club if I was my first year out or second year out. Absolutely rubbish. I would have been shown the door after a year and I would, I would have been disgruntled and I would have never worked in sport ever again. But I think importantly, you, you remain patient. You, you learn as many things as you can along the way and allows you to grow and develop those really strong skills. And it also allows you to failures so that you can get better as a person as well. So you know what works with athletes, you know what works with different kind of people um, and allows you to grow. And I, I think from a new grad perspective, I think key message, just be patient. Be patient. Don't expect to be on top of your game or on top of your field for many, many years down the track. And importantly, take your time and 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 just be just be patient. You just work hard, be patient, and you'll you'll get the rewards later. I think that's a great lesson in life, right there. It, trans- yeah, it transcends uh, professions. But um, thank you so much for doing this, Mick. Uh, oh, no worries, Alex. We know uh, guys like you are getting asked left and right for podcasts, and it's like everyone's having a podcast now including myself, so it's um, very appreciative of your time. Where can no, was, people... Yeah, go ahead. That was good. I like it. It was, uh, it was a really nice chat. It was like... Uh, was, and, the, and the one before this morning, like it was... It you was did another nice one to today? Sort of, yeah, with some guys over in the States. But it was oh, it was good. It was good. Like, you know, from both these this morning have been fantastic. It's just been nice. It's been, you know, deep conversations. It's been, you know, philosophical stuff. It's hasn't been so you know clinical and technical it's been some of some of those softer things it's been really really enjoyable to have a talk so thanks for asking me to come on alex it's of been course great. we'd love to have yeah. you on again in the future but um mick for now where would you tell people to go where could people find you do you have any asks of our audience um any last comments or, or where could people find you yeah no look yeah if anyone's um if they haven't uh, if they're not following me on instagram on instagram post pretty frequently there so my um my instagram handles mick mickhughes.physio um, same thing with Facebook uh, if you're on Twitter you know all, all the social media sites I've got a whole uh, whole heap of stuff that I share they generally um, are the same things just rehashed across different platforms yep. um, but uh, YouTube I've got a YouTube channel which has got a whole library of exercise videos I think often get people asking me what's this what, what kind of exercise can I do for this this and this and it's like well go check out my YouTube channel so that's often ticks a lot of boxes for people so uh, don't forget to check that out and of course if you're looking for some online education, uh, jump online to uh, learn.physio and check out some of our masterclass series there. Awesome. Um, and if you're, going, if you're going through ACL rehab, we've got the ACL Melbourne ACL rehab guide up online, free and online these days. So it's um, it's uh, melbourneacl.guide.com. Um, so yeah, a few things for people to Is check that out. Early, that's early stage to, what is the timeline on that? Uh, the ACL guide, it takes you from uh, pre-operative all the way through to return to sport. Um, so yeah, it cover, covers all the bases in, in different stages of rehabilitation. So it's free. Yeah, it's free. We, we, we used to sell it for about $5. You could download it for about $5 a pop. Uh, but now we've partnered up with, with La Trobe University. Mm-hmm. Um, we've partnered up with them. They've turned it into a website, which, um, we're now, uh, obviously with patient consent, we're using some of their de-identified data, uh, to collect research as well. So um, if you jump on to melbourneaclguide.com, um, patients will need to sign up, the physio will need to sign up, and then they become linked. And then the physio will enter in the data for the patient so we can um, you know, learn more about ACL injuries to help improve outcomes in the future. That is awesome. I got it up now. Um, so many resources. 
Much appreciate that. There you go. So give give you some uh, some reading and something to think about over the next uh, few few days and few hours. Nick Hughes, thank you very much. I hope you and your Thanks, family Alex. stay cheers, well. Cheers, mate. Yeah, all to you, mate. Stay healthy. You too. Speak soon. See you, mate. See ya. All right. That is Mick Hughes, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to give you guys uh, a little bit of a taste of what's coming next because we do this every Wednesday. So let me show you exactly what's coming next. Uh, what we have is, for those who don't know, we put all of these on... You'll find these on Spotify, on podcast platforms. All you got to do is look up Orphic Education and you'll come up with all these different podcasts that we're going to put on audio uh, on audio versions as well. Um, you can see we've done four so far. This is our fifth one every Wednesday. You can hear, see I'm listening to some very nice Spanish music over here, but don't worry about that as a topic for another day. Um, and then I'm going to give you guys the website that if you want to know all upcoming, you want to be notified of any future webinars, coaches roundtables that we do, all you got to do is go to Orphic Education forward slash webinar hyphen Wednesday and you will find exactly what is upcoming, our past guests. For example, today was Mick Hughes. Next week, we're having Tim, Dale, Costa Drac talking body composition, athlete training. Uh, and then you want to be notified. All you got to do is enter your details there. Boom, boom, boom. And you'll get notified. And then we also put it on YouTube as well because you know, YouTube's a great platform for uh, user interface. You know, you can make it faster, slower, whatever you need, and uh, watch it later. Um, so that's Orphic Education on YouTube. That's what we do, that's who we are. We, we're a company, education company, that deliver certificate threes and fours in fitness and are trying to change the game in that. You know, redesign and make the most comprehensive certificate three and four in the country uh, and elevate the standards of this industry. Just in case you didn't know, if you're new to Orphic, that's who we are, that's what we do in, in a nutshell. If you guys got any questions, comments for the next ones, any requests of guests, let us know, put it in the comments, DM us, email us, and we'll do our best to get them on. Uh, for now, thank you guys so much for listening, watching, and we'll see you next Wednesday.